to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social, and some people say I can be a little overly enthusiastic, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Each week we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book adjacent topics such as stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR lists, film adaptations that we've seen, and other bookish news. At the end of our shows, you'll find new books to put on your nightstand and hopefully a laugh or two along the way. I think many aspiring writers have a juicy family story passed down that they sure would make a great novel. Our guest this week, Sierra Horton McElroy, had heard stories about her grandfather, a scientist who worked at a plant that produced materials for a hydrogen bomb during the height of the Cold War in the 1960s. That one family story is the jumping off point of her debut novel, a work of historical fiction titled Atomic Family, that takes the reader on a journey to an era of burgeoning women's rights, Sears Roebuck fashion, and the suburban American dream, with some good old radiation thrown into the mix yay good old-fashioned radiation Radiation. that always that always (laughs) livens things up so i gave this book atomic family five stars and that is not a number of stars that i give out regularly but uh it starts with a chapter or ends with a cliffhanger and so you just you have to keep reading and it was beautifully written. The characters, they frustrate you, but you also feel for them. I just felt like it was sort of a perfect combination. Man, it hit all the sweet spots for me. So we talked to Sierra this week about what it was like to be a tourist at a now abandoned hydrogen bomb facility, about how writing a little blog at the age of 16 helped her start her own company, and the big differences between living in a state like Florida versus the Midwest. But first, Carrie, we are coming close to the end of this season eight. We have, I don't know, maybe four or so episodes left, and we're already doing planning for next season. And recently, we have booked some guests that I'm super excited about. (laughs) And when you text me and say, well, I booked so-and-so, and I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And you're like, yeah. Let me qualify that. It's not that I don't want to talk to these people. It, it, it's not that. It has nothing to do with these people. You. <laughs> I'm overly enthusiastic. You are. And I think I just don't get wowed by people. Like, I think even if President Obama or I don't know, Jesus came, I would not be wowed because maybe Jesus, just because, you know. <laughs> But I I just don't get wowed by other human beings because we're all pretty much the same. We all have families. We all have issues. We all have fears. We all experience happiness. There is no reason why one person should like wow me over another person. I just don't get wowed by people. Well, okay. In my defense, I don't know that it was that I was. You were wowed. Okay, maybe. I guess, I, I guess, but I, I guess I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was just thinking, these are some really awesome guests that we're going to have this upcoming season, and I'm so excited. And 
you know, rah, rah, cheerleader, you know. Either way you go. I'm not wowed by people. And I can't generate any enthusiasm for next season because we're, we're still in the middle of this season. And also, I don't get excited about anything, honestly. You know, like if I have anybody that I would say, you know, if you think about somebody on screen or on shows or in movies, Roy Kent. Yeah. I really relate to Roy Kent. I feel like he's my, he's my spirit person or something. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of that gruff, like whatever, you know, and, and I think the thing is like Roy Kent at, at his core is a, is a decent person, like is a good person and is, He's everybody's favorite character. He's everybody's you know, Carrie, favorite character. So. I'm not going to generate much enthusiasm for much of anything, but if you're in a pickle, I might be the person you want to call. So Absolutely. you just got to put up with my. <laughs> so <laughs> Very rarely have I had you growl at me. So I feel okay about that. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Yeah, we're only four years in. I know. Maybe. Who knows what could happen next season? <laughs> what have, What have y'all been watching? We watched a man called Otto. I'm impressed because I thought that you originally said you did not want to see that because they changed the name from Uva to Otto to make yeah. it, I guess, a little more accessible for American audiences. Which yeah. You were totally not enthusiastic about. Yeah, so. in general, I hate the Americanization of stuff. Because that just, to me, it tends to ruin things. I, I don't like it. I'm like, hey, how about Americans get on the same page as the rest of the world <laughs> instead of the rest of the world trying to get on the same page as Americans? I, I think it's just absurd. Well, and the thing is, I like Tom Hanks. I am not in any way, shape, or form anti-Tom Hanks. But I feel like, I don't know, really? you. Tom Hanks in this role, we got to pick a big celebrity and put him in this role. Anyway, I was just very not looking forward to this, but it has been slim pickings in in the movie, you know, the streaming world lately for me. So we watched it and it was, it was actually very good. But what made it, I think, was not so much Tom Hanks. It was the supporting cast. Ah, okay. Made the movie for me. The woman who plays Marisol, his neighbor, who sort of helps chip away at his curmudgeonly exterior, she was excellent. So, really, to me, what I like the supporting cast better than Tom Hanks. So, the book that this movie is based on is A Man Called Uva by Frederick Bachman, in case anybody did not know that. So, it is based on a book. And so, you felt like they did a pretty decent. Uh, rendition of it then even Uh, if it had tom hanks yeah it's been a long time since i read the book i felt like it was a good movie overall i felt like it was a good movie so there i can be persuaded uh i still don't like the americanization of all things but i'll give it its its props okay what have you been up to well, I watched a couple of episodes of a show that if you are a person who likes Planet Earth or Blue Planet or any of those type of, you know, nature documentary shows, my daughter and I found a new one and it's called Our Great National Parks and it is done by former President Obama. Obama is the narrator for this and it is a docu-series 
that features national parks. Now, when I say national parks, I originally thought it was going to be just American national parks, but it is not. It is about national parks all over the world. Now that Um, I would find interesting. Right. So in the first episode is sort of an overview of, uh, you know, different national parks. But then I think that then each subsequent episode kind of features one particular area. So for us, the second was about Patagonia in Chile and about, I think there's, I think they said there's like 10 different national parks that are in Patagonia and each are a little bit different. And so that was pretty interesting. But you know, actually national parks started in the United States. It started with Yellowstone and then other countries kind of got that idea and have, you know, spread it to their own countries. But it was really good. I, you know, I love fictional series or different things, but every now and then, like when I can't find something else I want to see, I find it very calming to watch a nature documentary. Oh, you know, I, I'm an animal lover, so I love all that. And it's just, I don't know, I find it very... Very soothing. I'm going to start watching that. We are actually going on our trip to Scotland. We're going into uh, one of Scotland's national parks. Oh, which awesome. I'm excited about. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. so this is on Netflix. I don't know if okay. I mentioned Netflix. So, yeah, I would recommend that. Cool. Uh, speaking of the natural world, I have started doing some gardening in my yard. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have too. You're big yep. into native species yep. and. So we live in a a neighborhood, you know, sort of a planned neighborhood. And our backyard, it backs up to the woods, basically. And when we moved in 18 years ago, we have a lot of trees in our yard and it's sloped. Mm-hmm. So it's super shady. Mm-hmm. And we tried to plant some things, but what we found is it's really hard to grow things back there, like plants that you get at the nursery. Because it's so shady and because soil quality, I don't know if it's bad. It's just. Well, this area is clay soil. Yeah. I don't know. A few years ago, we decided we were just going to kind of let it go back to nature. Because Mm -hmm. if you're on our deck, it kind of looks like a treehouse. It's really pretty, especially in the summertime, because you cannot see anything like behind the trees. It it just looks like a forest. Okay. Okay. So we decided to kind of let it go back to nature. Well, (laughs) our neighbor on one side of us, he's a retired man who spends almost all of his time working Uh, on his uh, yard. You could have stopped it. Retired man. That's all I need to know. We're actually very friendly with them, but (laughs) I think he hates our, he hates our yard because he's worried that our nature is going to encroach on his finely manicured lawn. There are parts of our yard that may be a little too wild, and I am working on, you know, doing some weeding and some different things back there. But he has installed a a wood barrier that comes up the property line between our two houses so that we have some African violets. And African violets are very invasive. But so those African violets cannot get from our yard into his yard. And I'm trying not to be offended by it. That we just have two different philosophies, right? Like yes. I'm more like let it just go back to nature because first of all, it's better for the environment. Second of yep. all, it's a lot less work for us. And yeah. for the most part, it's it's pretty. You know, yeah. I mean it's not controlled like a manicured lawn. I, I don't understand the the whole 
everybody's yard needs to look like a golf course. Yeah. Like, like somebody bought into that a long time ago and we've all been brainwashed, but I think your backyard's really lovely. Well, thank you. Well, the thing is, I mean, we have lots and lots of trees in our backyard. So we'd never, unless we cut down those trees, we'd never be able to grow a lawn back there. Right. He does not have the trees. He must have cut down all those trees and installed grass, which I don't want to do. Right. You know, I don't want to do that. I think that's a him issue, not a you issue. I think so too. So you need to just let it be a him issue. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Well, speaking of soil and getting your hands down into that dirt, yeah, down into that dirt, we're going to talk with Sierra about her book, Atomic Family, where the main character is a soil scientist and he's testing the soil for radiation. We're speaking with debut novelist Sierra Horton McElroy who uh, we are excited to talk to. I very rarely give books five stars, but her debut novel, Atomic Family, got five stars from me. So I'm really excited to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to chat with you both. So Sierra, you are on the tail end of a book tour. I saw that you were just in New Orleans, so we are glad to catch you, hopefully a little bit rested from your trip. For our listeners who may not have read your book, can you give them a little synopsis of what your book's about? Atomic Family is the story of one family during the course of one life-changing day in small town South Carolina. It's November 1st, 1961. And we follow Dean, who is a scientist at the local uh, bomb plant that's creating materials for the hydrogen bomb. And he's dealing with the stress of work and keeping secrets from his family and some really devastating environmental data that he's uncovered and wrestling with what to do with that kind of information. And then we have his wife, Nellie, who is uh, dissatisfied with her life, to say the very least. And she ends up teaming up with a group of other women who are married to these scientists and they are all protesting um, nuclear weapons and the nuclear race. And so that gets really tricky because they're not just protesting weapons, but also their husbands and this plant that provides work to their entire town and community. And then these two parents are so distracted with what's going on that their son, Wilson, kind of slips under the radar. And he's this 10-year-old little boy. He's my favorite character in the book. And he has, I like to say, absorbed the propaganda of the Cold War, like radiation. Like it's just in his body. It's in his brain. He is literally hunting for communists because he believes truly that a nuclear bomb is coming at any moment and he must be ready. So it's a way to explore the Cold War and living in an age of anxiety through the lens of one American family. Well, the first chapter of the book is kind of a cliffhanger. You don't know exactly what happened. It's not great. And then the story kind of builds on that. Talk to us a little bit about the inspiration for this novel. It it has a bit of a, a family connection for you. That's right. You know, um, my grandfather was a soil scientist, so an agronomist who worked at the Savannah River plant in outside Aiken, South Carolina uh, during the Cold War. And he was working on the disposal of nuclear waste. And his job was very top secret. It was very dangerous. 
And I grew up hearing stories about it. You know, I never met him. He died in the 70s. But my father, who was an only child, would tell me what it was like to grow up as a kid during the era of duck and cover drills, knowing, quite honestly, that his town was a target because of the dangerous work that his father was doing, dangerous work that he could know nothing about. And I just found that fascinating. I was like, this is this is the epitome of the literary Southern Gothic setting. This really... <laughs> It is like this yeah. creepy, you know, eerie setting in the South. And I think when you compound that with everything else happening in the 60s, like women's rights changing, it just created such a unique literary environment to talk about the things that I was passionate about. So I could write about environmental issues, gender issues, but also domestic family conflict. And it just created this little microcosm. So I felt for a long time that there was a novel here. Um, in my family history. And it just was a matter of making sure my family was comfortable with me writing about it and then making sure I felt knowledgeable enough about the era to write about it as accurately and honestly as possible. What did your family think about it? They were very supportive, but it took some conversation to make sure that they understood that it was a novel. (laughs) Like I was going to take creative licenses and liberties. This is not a reflection of my grandfather as a character, you know? And I think that that kind of degree of separation is what was really helpful because, you know, this is obviously a work of fiction just inspired by nuggets of truth. And it it allowed me that space. But yeah, they were very helpful. My father traveled with me on a research trip. We got to go see the nuclear site where my grandfather worked. So I think that was really cool for him too, because he'd never been there. You know, when he was living there, it was kids were not allowed. There was no mm-hmm. take your kid to work day. And now <laughs> it's decommissioned and he got to go with me. So it actually created some really special moments. They are, ironically to me, focused on environmental cleanup. And um, Hmm. they do these research tours where you can take a bus and um, go with a guide through the nuclear site. He got to, you know, cross the barbed wire fence with me and and also helped, I don't know, like place the importance and gravitas of, of the nuclear site for me being able to be there and see it for myself. This particular time period, the Cold War, is not one that I have read very much about. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it, uh, of getting to to learn some more about that. You know, you hear about, it was before our time, but kids hiding under their desks during, you know, bomb drills and things like that. And so even on your website, you have this nice little section of it that shows like real documents uh, and newspaper clippings and things of your grandfather in that time period. What other kinds of things did you do to sort of get that 60s atomic feel going on. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of things. For the for the research part, especially the science because, you know, I'm not a nuclear scientist and I did not, you know, <laughs> do a crash course on uh, PhD level soil science. Uh, I actually used my grandfather's research that's now available. You know, a lot of these documents are declassified, and so you can find them through like WorldCat and Google Scholar just by searching name and like a, you know, date range. And that was really cool to see the work he was actually working on and help me build out what Dean would actually be working on as someone who in the book is studying the way that nuclear waste is managed. As far as for other pieces, like the tone of the book, it was very important to me to not just read about the 60s. Like our perspective on it now is very different 
I wanted to read from the era. So I was engaging in a lot of material that my characters would have read, listened to, watched. Um, and that really helped create the voice and the tone of the piece. So I read lots of Cold War propaganda and civil defense pamphlets and wanted to understand the message that was given to um, housewives, which was different than the message given to children and men. Like they had different kind of propaganda voices. I read lots of like women's catalogs. I watched films and that also helped me truly get a sense of the type of fear that people were living with at the time. Because it's one thing to like read about it and it's completely different to read from the era. So that kind of primary source work was really helpful in this case. As far as like building the time period, even small things, like at one point in the book, um, Nell takes a bus to go into a larger town to go shopping and she goes to Sears. And this is like super fancy to go to Sears. And I remember kind of chuckling to myself because now Sears is, I, I don't know, they might be completely bankrupt now or defunct, but it's not what I would consider elegant, right? Like, I don't necessarily think of Sears yeah. as being this elegant department store to go to. So that was just like one small detail, but I appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a standard of living for her. Like, it's, this is what it means to like reach, <laughs> reach the, the top of the pinnacle yes suburban life yeah the pinnacle exactly you know all these beautiful things that she desires for her home and it's partly how she's just wrestling with the stress of her life yeah but i want to talk for a minute about isolation because that i feel like is one of the overarching ideas in the book so they are a family of three but each of the characters for different reasons is isolated from each other. And that feels really kind of devastating to the reader. And I felt like you were maybe saying something not just about this particular family, but also about the Cold War in general. So was that me, you know, just trying to read too much into it? Or or was that something that you kind of saw either as you were writing or or once you finished it? Yeah, well, you're not reading too much into it. (laughs) That is definitely there. You know, I, I wanted... like this family to be a microcosm of the themes of the Cold War. There's a line in the book, you know, theirs was a Cold War marriage, right? And that really speaks to the heart of it. This is a family that is always waiting for the disaster to come, whether or not it does. And that creates this, this sense of stress, anxiety, fear. And a lot of that is stemming from Dean's work at this nuclear site, but also just long long-lasting stress in their marriage that has not been dealt with. They are a couple who clearly need counseling and help that they have not received. And a lot of those things are just, I think, the nature of being in the 50s and 60s and some of the gender issues that are at play. So it was very important to me that they were isolated. I think that that speaks to the era, but also speaks to the characters themselves. It is interesting that this is a family novel and they are pretty much never all in scene Mm. together. They all have their own worlds and their own lives. And that's kind of the point is that they're not this connected unit and they're they're missing each other. They're speaking past each other. They're not seeing each other. And especially with the parents who are so wrapped up in their own anger, frustrations, things that's going on in their, their daily life that they miss the biggest thing that they should be worried about, which is their child. They both are so distracted. And I think in order to accomplish that, the physical isolation was necessary on the page. And yeah, I hope it is distressing because it should be 
even though it's believable. When Carrie and I were talking about it, I think what she saw as isolation, I saw it more as the way that these secrets were sort of eroding Dean and the other people who worked there, like from the inside out. The work that he does, he could not share with anyone, even, and maybe especially his wife, and having to keep a secret like that from even your you know, your spouse was something that just was destroying them in a way, because that secret is partly what she is angry about, too. So I'm wondering, you know, there's still people today, you know, obviously in government who are working top secret positions where they can't share what they do. I'm just I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that that's a necessary component of the type of isolation that they are experiencing, because it's not just physical. It's also... (laughs) emotional, mental, it's all of all of the things at once. And I think what is really difficult in their context is that there are moments where he so desperately wants to confide in her. He needs someone to talk to outside the plant and he's unable to. Um, and yes, that still happens today in lots of different sectors. And I imagine that that creates a lot of psychological anxiety and stress, um, especially in a marriage where there's this kind of inequity, which is really what's happening here. He feels weighed down by it. And I think what makes him sad is that he's witnessing the people in his community who are so stressed about the wrong thing. And he knows what the real danger is. He's like, it's really less about maybe fallout getting on the grass. I know that sounds scary, but it's more about the water that we're drinking. And he can't talk about Mm -hmm. that, even when it could save people. And that kind of stress, especially as a father and husband, is what's really getting to him because a lot of their conflict would have been more easily resolved if he'd been able to explain, hey, look, like I know I'm taking Wilson's teeth to be tested, but it's really a benign issue. It sounds scarier than it is (laughs) because it sounds scary. Like as a mom, I would be so mad if that was happening. Um, (laughs) But he knows the real danger and can't tell her. And I just imagine that that would be so so emotionally difficult in a marriage that's already on thin ice. The other thing I was thinking about a lot is just the metaphor of things that we bury that we say we'll deal with this a different day. Because at the time it was like, oh, we'll just bury this nuclear waste and it'll probably, (laughs) you know, be less of a problem in the future, which is not true. It's actually more of a problem because now these containers are breaking down and it's leaking into the soil and groundwater and it's a continuation of a huge problem. But that's what I think secrets do in a marriage is that if you just try to hide them, bury them, it will erode over time and become a bigger problem. And so it allows for this extended metaphor in the book from a literary perspective. Well, and both Dean and Nellie, I mean, I know they wouldn't have used this language then, but trauma, you know, they had experiences from their childhood, whether it was poverty or divorce or whatever. And I don't think they ever really dealt with those things either. So it was like they brought to their marriage things that they had buried. And then with with the predicament of his job, there's even more that's buried. And so it's just kind of this this constant barrage of things that they're keeping underground, as it were. Completely. And it's so compounded. Like, I really wanted as a writer to know the backstory to my characters so intimately and like, give the little hints of it throughout. But not only do we have 
Nellie's difficult childhood as a you know child of divorce when that really wasn't happening in the 30s. And then we have her to meet undiagnosed postpartum depression. We have signs of her really struggling. Like there's all these different layers that are compounded to their trauma over time that has just been not addressed. And I think mental health is kind of a through line in the book because this is an era where that really wasn't talked about. There wasn't good treatment for that. And so both of these characters have their own kind of PTSD, their own kind of stress, trauma, depression, anxiety that's just not been dealt with and has been hidden away for too long. And it's really, it's coming out. It's coming out today. Well, I texted Carrie while I was reading it and I said, poor Wilson needs to be on some med. <laughs> I felt so bad for this for this child. But also, you know, as a parent of a child who has had obsessive compulsive, I mean, it wasn't obviously to the extent of Wilson, but it's scary as a parent and not knowing, you know, how to deal with that. And especially, you know, in the 60s, that was something you didn't talk about. There weren't really any... I don't think medication was really a very common treatment for adults or children. Yeah, it was so easy to dismiss. And I I mean, I can see these parents being like, oh, he's just a kid. I think Nellie says that somewhere. He's just a boy being a boy, you know, let him play in the fallout shelter. Who cares? You know, he's playing. <laughs> he's just a little boy. And it's so easy to dismiss these things that are really dangerous by just saying, oh, they're just... They're just being kids when no, like there's something else happening that yeah. you should pay attention to and intervene. Well, I grew up in a, a in a town that had a DuPont Chemicals, it had a Union Carbide in it. And so this is a family drama. This is a historical fiction novel. Do you also see your book as an environmental novel or an ecological novel? I do. I do. I hope that it brings to the forefront some of these historical issues that are also very contemporary. I think it's easy to think that, you know, nuclear waste management and concerns about it are something that we've already dealt with because it's not in the current conversation. But there is still huge cleanup happening from all of these sites, including like Oak Ridge from the Manhattan Project and Hanford. And we still have effects from, you know, people who worked there and have had health effects. So I definitely see it as an environmental novel as much as I see it as a domestic and family drama I think that a good comparative title for it is Damnation mm. Spring by mm -hmm. Ash Davidson, which came out very recently. And when I read it, I was like, oh, my gosh, we're talking about such similar things, the effects of these large corporations or agencies and what they're doing to the environment and then how that affects the people who live there and work there and drink water yeah. there and are trying to raise families. So I see it in conversation with a lot of works like that. So do you see any contemporary situations now that are sort of reminiscent of the one that you describe in your book? Well, there's continuing environmental issues that are very similar of companies that are not managing waste very well. Actually, I just was in conversation with Nathaniel Rich um, in New Orleans, who is a journalist who's written a lot about DuPont, which, by the way, the Savannah River plant that this book is inspired by was a DuPont run plant. So there's a lot of. Oh, was it really? Yes. I did not know. Yes. Okay. A lot of overlap there. And he wrote this really great piece called Dark Waters about all these cattle who are dying and people who are getting sick, birth defects just from chemicals in the water that are being sent out. So that, that does continue to happen and is a big problem. And a lot of journalists like Nathaniel are doing great work on that. The thing that I see maybe most obviously that reminds me of the book is actually 
not about the environment and it's more about anxiety that children mm-hmm. are facing. And so I do tend to talk a lot about gun violence in schools just because, you know, Wilson is preparing himself to die at school. You know, they do these duck and cover drills the same way, honestly, that we do active shooter drills in school for kids. And what it does is it creates this really toxic environment for a child to have to deal with these really heavy things so early. And what we see right now is that a lot of the movement to fight the gun legislation, gun lobby is led by women. It's movements like Moms Demand Action. And that's no surprise. I mean, we've seen this in the past, like Women's Strike for Peace, which is the women's movement Nellie joins. That was a real movement. It's been pretty standard in the U.S. that a lot of these types of legislative pushes are led by women who are concerned and who say this is not acceptable. We cannot raise our children in this kind of environment. And they are the ones pushing for change. So I see a lot of similarities to what's happening with with that. Yeah, that's what came to mind when I was reading it. I mean, besides the the environmental aspect was the kids having to do active shooter drills, you know, and, you know, in some states, teachers carrying their their own guns. I mean, yes, it's horrifying. I mean, your your book, Atomic Family, is historical fiction. Do you have a favorite genre that you tend to like to read? And if so, why that one? Yeah, I do read a lot of historical fiction, but I am definitely partial to literary historical fiction, like Anthony Doerr's oh, All That We Cannot yes. See, which I'm just obsessed with. Um, I have to like the sentences <laughs> that I say at the end of the day. Like, I have to think that it's it's pretty, you know, that it, it's well written. Some works can be too literary for me. There have to be stakes, like literary fiction plus historical timeline and clear stakes, I'm in. That book is for me. But I also really do enjoy a good, edgy, contemporary literary novel. I loved Big Swiss, for example. So I tend to read, yeah, contemporary literary fiction or like literary historical fiction. Well, it's funny that you should say that, that you have to like the sentences, because I I will say that I thought that your novel was beautifully written. have some wonderful sentences of your own. Here's one I particularly like. Besides, stories have a way of growing arms and legs of their own, walking out closed doors and introducing themselves to anyone willing to listen. To me, that's just a lovely sentence. So uh, you definitely, you you fit that, you fit that mold yourself. Well, you know, you're you're affected by what you read. Absolutely. If that's what you care about, then that will hopefully come through. So I'm curious, what are a few books that you've recently added to your TBR list? Well, the new Rebecca Mackay Mm, book, for mm -hmm. sure. I have some questions for you. That is right up my alley. And I'm so excited to read that. I just needed to be home from book tour to like give it the attention it deserves. I also am really excited to read Hello Beautiful, Mm. By Anne Napolitano. I loved, loved, loved her book, Dear Edward. It just captured me so much. Um, Highly, highly recommend. And so her new novel um, just recently came out, and I'm thrilled to read that. And then the last one on my TBR is the new Kelly Link short story collection. I love Kelly Link, so I'm excited to read that too. Very good. Now, the the Anne Napolitano, let's see, there's somebody who recently put it on their book club list somebody was it oprah i think that was the new oprah Oprah. book club pick yes which should get her a lot of readers doing that one yes and the big swiss i have heard wonderful things about from several different people 
It is so weird. <laughs> Would know, you say it's it, weird it, fiction? I feel like there's this new thing now, like almost a subgenre. That's called like weird fiction. Would would you say it's weird fiction? It is weird. It's 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 like believable, but just a little bit surrealist. So, for example, she lives in this kind of rundown house, and there's a beehive that's just randomly in the kitchen. Just like I, I just weird things like that happen in this book. It's definitely a little spicier. Uh-huh. You know, I don't typically read a lot of books like that, but um, this one is so good. Yeah, the premise is that. The, the woman is a transcriptionist for a sex therapist. So she's, you know, writing down all the the sessions and she ends up basically falling in love with one of her boss's patients. So it's like really twisted, <laughs> like talk about secrets, right? Like not explaining, hey, I know a lot about you because I've been listening to your therapy. Yeah, that's <laughs> for my job. So it's so twisted, so weird, but I love it. Good. You've been on your your own book tour, so I want to know as a debut author, um, well, a debut novelist. You've you've written stuff that's been published before. What has surprised you the most about the experience of being on a book tour? Oh my goodness! I think just how exhausting it is. <laughs> um, I truly thought, oh, it'll just be so fun, one trip after the other, you know. And by the time I went to New Orleans, I was so tired. I was like, this. I've done so many of these now. And it still is so fun. Like, I, I never want to lose the joy in it because I get to travel and talk about my book, which is truly, truly what I dreamed about for years. That doesn't take away how exhausting it is to make all of these different travels, you know, be in all these different bookstores, signing back stock, selling sometimes a few copies, sometimes a lot. You just never know. And so it's just a lot of work. And I think what I've also learned is that it's paving the way for my career even beyond this book and helping myself visualize like book tour is not just about Atomic Family. Right. It's about building relationships with booksellers. So I had one event where no one showed up. Oh, I, I think every, every author has that story, doesn't it? Yes. It's like a badge of, of honor now to, to have Exactly. That. I almost thought it was funny, you know, except for I had like traveled to be there. And, you know, most of the time it's been a great turnout, but there are humbling moments like that too. And the bookstore was so kind and the bookseller told me, he's like, but you, we got to yeah. connect. And that's what this is about. Like now I know who you are and I will champion your work and- I left so confident, like this was still completely worth it, even though we sold no books and I met no, no readers. And that's the kind of thing that I just was not prepared for and did not visualize happening on book tour because no one really talks about that. But a lot of the tour is really about the connections that you're building with booksellers, the professionalism that you bring and making sure that you're building those relationships so that they can support you because it is a a hugely collaborative industry to be in. And you need those booksellers to um, look out for your name, know who you are, and then champion your work. Yeah, Uh, that's great. You hear about extremely big, famous authors talking about book events they did that no one showed up. But I liked your answer that, you know, making those connections with booksellers, even if you didn't get to connect with any readers, um, because they're so important. So that's great. That's great. Well, I think it's time for us to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we are all reading.
Good. We are back with Sierra Horton McElroy, and she is the author of Atomic Family. And of course, though, we are all book lovers here. So Carrie, what have you been reading this week? So I finished up a book not too long ago. Uh, it was an audiobook called I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica L. Sanchez. And this is the story of Julia and her family. Well, actually, I say Julia. It's Julia. Her older sister, Olga, has died in a terrible accident. She was hit by a car. And Julia and her parents are, of course, devastated. But their grief becomes sort of toxic, especially because Julia is not like Olga. Olga was, and I'm putting this in air quotes, the perfect Mexican daughter. And Julia wants something different. She wants to move away. She wants to go to school someplace far away. She wants to become a writer. And her parents, who are undocumented, and ca they're carrying their own baggage from trying to survive in the United States, they don't really understand her. Julia begins digging, and she discovers some secrets about Olga. And so that makes the reader then question, maybe there really is no such thing as a perfect Mexican daughter. So this is a, a book that I think probably it would be characterized as YA, which isn't really my sweet spot of books, but I, I enjoyed this one. She goes to Mexico to visit her mother's family, and she sort of learns about why her parents left Mexico. And by the end of the book, she sort of comes to some realizations, not only about herself, but about her parents. And then again, she discovers some secrets about her sister. So I'd recommend it. I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica L. Sanchez. Sierra, I know you, you've been on book tour. You have a little one, so you probably don't have a whole lot of time to read, but what have you been reading lately? Yeah, I definitely have less time than I did. <laughs> but um, I recently read Hester by Lori Lico Albanese. Have you guys read that? I have no. read it. I read that recently. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a little bit different from what I typically read, but I do tend to love fiction that reimagines historical people. I mean, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I've always loved Nathaniel Hawthorne and have been fascinated by, you know, Salem and just its really complicated history. So Hester is the story of a young immigrant woman seamstress named Isabel, who has moved to Massachusetts with her husband, who's pretty terrible. And he basically um, abandons her as soon as they move there and is away on a merchant ship. And she is left to make a living for herself, which she tries to do as a seamstress. And she meets Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is, you know, this ruddy, scrawny guy working on his poetry and short stories. And they they fall in love. She becomes a really complicated muse figure for him, which is something that the book really explores. Like, what does that mean? And then who has control? Um, who owns the story? Things like that. And the premise is that she may have been the inspiration for Hester Prynne in The Scarlet Letter. And so it's a reimagination of what might have prompted the book that is Hawthorne's most famous novel. So there's some really interesting components in it, really fascinating history about Salem after the witch trials and the effect of the witch trials on the town. It's also a really unique characterization because Isabel has 
I'm hoping I'm going to say this right, but synesthesia, where when she yeah. sees letters, um, she sees them as certain colors. And so the, the red A becomes very prominent there. But it, it's something that people were afraid of and thought that might be magical or witchcraft. And so it just has multiple levels of um, exploration about how the, the witch trials continue to impact Salem. So I really enjoyed it. I think I think it was great. I listened to that one on audio, and I will say that the narrator of it has a wonderful Scottish accent because Isabel originally, uh, she immigrates from Scotland. Yeah with her husband. So Carrie, you, you might, you know, Carrie's going I, to Scotland in a couple oh, months. Fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to add it's that. It's good. Because <laughs> I, I, I love a good reimagining. Yes, so me too. that is going to the top of my list. <laughs> well, Amy, what have you been, what has been keeping you busy reading wise? Well, we're talking about some historical fiction today. So the one I'm going to talk about is historical fiction, too. It's called Madame Palmerie by Rebecca Rosenberg. And this is a novel that's set in mid-1860s France, and it follows the true story of Madame Palmerie, who was an etiquette teacher, and she founded an orphanage. But when her husband dies, she has to figure out a way to support herself and her young daughter. And her husband's business was wool, and they produced just a little bit of red wine on the side um, from some um, vineyards on their property. And so after his death, she decides to sell the wool business and focus solely on wine. But instead of red wine, she wants to produce sparkling wine, even though she has no experience making it. And producing champagne is a much more complicated process. It has lots more steps than just regular still wine. But not only does she want to make a wine that she has no idea how to produce, she also wants to change its profile. Because at the time, champagne was all very sweet. That was the accepted style at the time. But Madame Palmery didn't care for that kind of wine herself, and she wanted to produce something much less sweet. So she is the pioneer of Brut Champagne, which is what most people drink today. So she has to battle the banks, her creditors, and also there's a war going on during this time, the Franco-Prussian War. So the Germans have taken over France, and so she has to contend with that, and even weather. Um, so this is the second in the Champagne Widows series. Rebecca Rosenberg's first book is titled Champagne Widows, but it follows the story of Veuve Clicquot, who was a French widow who revolutionized making champagne in general, making it stable enough to be able to ship to other countries to export it. And her story involves Napoleon Bonaparte. Partially what led to both of these women being able to be trailblazers was the law in France that the only way that women could own a business was if their husband was dead. So um, the number of wars that were engaged in by Napoleon Bonaparte, but also his nephew, Napoleon II, who was who was in control of France when Madame Palmerie was alive, was that all the able-bodied men went to war and that there were lots of widows then and that they were able to be innovative. In these books, you get wine history, which is a big plus for me. Um, you get French history, as well as some really strong women who have changed history. The champagneries that these women created are still around, and you can purchase their wines today. In fact, we bought some 
Veuve Clicquot champagne a couple New Year's Eves ago, Carrie and I, because we had just interviewed Rebecca Rosenberg for the show and we wanted to try the wine. I happen to know that there is a third book Uh planned in this series. The next one will be about Lily Bollinger, who took over the Bollinger Winery after her husband's death during World War II. And I have to mention the covers on these books are scrumptious. They they look like vintage and antique French art posters. So again, the name of the book is Madame Pomery by Rebecca Rosenberg. And if you want to hear more about that first book, you can listen to our episode with the author in episode 122. That's in season six. Wow. So, you, you have that in your memory? I looked it up before. (laughs) I looked it up before we started. Uh, Okay. All right. Well, you know, you you talked that one up. I I enjoyed Champagne Widows. So now I guess I have to add Madame Pomery to that as well. So two new books for me to add to my TBR this week. Let's take another (laughs) quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Sierra in the hot seat. We're going to ask her some, (laughs) some probing questions. are back with Sierra Horton McElroy, author of Atomic Family, and we're going to get to the nitty gritty about some stuff in her life. So number one, what is Clover and Bee and how did it begin? Clover and Bee is my business. It's a boutique communications consulting agency, and we provide communication strategy, uh, copywriting, ghostwriting, editing, all all the things for both nonprofits and film companies, but also authors. So we work with a wide range of clients. But right now we're focused largely on film campaigns. So what that means is we provide copywriting for websites and social media platforms that align with overall campaign goals. So we help drive audiences to the theater for box office release. So what was your degree in in college or what were you imagining that you were you were going to do after college? So my degree is in English writing. I went to Wheaton College, a small liberal arts school outside Chicago. I think I thought I would do the PhD track or be a professor after my MFA, but honestly had a difficult teaching experience during my MFA and was like, this just feels like not worth it. (laughs) Like I love teaching if it was like the perfect environment and there were good jobs and good benefits and good pay, Mm. but you know, that's not, that's not how it is. (laughs) And just didn't, didn't love it. So it's something I could see myself doing in the future, but for now I just didn't want to do the adjunct track and yeah, be gunning for jobs. Right. So then how did you get into, into this? So weird story. It is so serendipitously weird. I had a blog in high school like a little WordPress blog that like maybe 15 people read. (laughs) And I was doing film reviews and book reviews and just, you know, whatever kind of writing. And my family was invited to a pre-screening of a film that was not out yet. And so I asked permission to write a review. I was like, this is perfect for my little blog. And we sent it to the filmmakers and just said, hey, we loved the film here's my little article um, just as a thank you. And then they asked if they could use it for their marketing campaign. Now I'm like, Oh, I'm like 16. I'm like thrilled, you know, or maybe I was 18. I don't remember, but I was so excited for anyone to read anything. (laughs) So I, of course said, yes, truly years go by. I don't hear from them. I go to college, I do my thing. And then I am, 
I've just moved to Orlando for my MFA. It's like August. I'm about to start. And I get a call out of the blue saying, hey, remember us? We have a job. It's a job working on a film. Um, We're looking for a communications director. Now, I had no idea what a communications director did. Okay. I'm like, I study fiction. I had been a reporter for a little while in college. So I had some journalism experience, uh, which turned out to be really helpful because I was used to working on deadlines and turning copy in quickly. But um, yeah, basically took a job that I was underqualified for. I am fine to say that because I had no marketing experience, but I was a very good writer and I could draft strong copy quickly. I could follow instructions. So truly, I say they took a chance on me because they had an opening. And I guess we're thinking, what are some writers that we know? And I just fell into it. And then after that, I loved working on that campaign so much. I was like, there's a real niche here. This is such a strange little market to be in that I continue to network and connect and um, work my way onto other projects. And so that's where we are now. And now I have someone who works with me. So our team is growing. She's also here in St. Louis and she does social media for us. So yeah, it's, it's been great. Awesome. You know, I wonder, cause I know some people who are, you know, quite a bit younger than me and they have talked about how, you know, they've been offered jobs or they've gone for jobs that maybe they weren't, qualified for, and then they just sort of spent the the weekend before they started or the weeks before they started watching YouTube videos and just learning as much as they could. And, (laughs) you know, I think it's great. I wish I could, I don't know if, again, if, if it's a generational thing, but I'm like, I wish I could do that. Like, I wish I had the gumption to do that. I think it's fantastic because I guess the thing is, the older I get, the more I realize how many people who, you know, I look at people's uh, LinkedIn, uh, you know, what they write about themselves. And I'm like, there's no way you're all this stuff. I've worked with you. You're not like that, you know? And so I just think it's great to kind of, you know, if you think you can do it, try. I mean, what's the worst that happens? You end up where you start. Exactly. You know, that's like everyone started somewhere, you know, no one one automatically knew how to do you know, film marketing for niche demographics, right? right? Like it's such right. a weird thing. And I wouldn't have even known how to do that had I studied marketing in college because it's still such a completely yeah. different field and niche. So yeah, I mean, right. I think it might be generational. I think things are changing, you know, like being willing to take things yeah. and take risks and try it. And and also like yeah. not necessarily committing to a long-term corporate job. I'm seeing more of that too among my friends. So. Yeah. So in addition to stalking you professionally, we were also stalking you in other ways on the internet to develop our questions. So you all, you appear to be a true Renaissance woman because in addition to your writing and communications work, you also paint. Tell us about your interest in painting. That's right. So I feel like I have a family story for everything, but my, (laughs) my grandmother on my mother's side uh, was a professional artist. And she taught my mother how to paint. Then my mother taught me, which is kind of this like motherhood thing that was passed down. And so I grew up with like regular art classes and just being, I don't know, exposed to it. I always had a personal interest in modern and contemporary art that was different than like the more realism styles that my family was interested in. But I began to take art more seriously when I was in my MFA, I think because I needed a break from my computer. (laughs) That 
honest. Like I needed to work with my hands. I needed to get messy and not be looking at a screen. And so it became this really fun outlet to take art more seriously. And I got involved in like the local art scene in Orlando at the time and started showcasing some work at a little bar and gallery that was downtown. And it was just one of the most beautiful experiences that I didn't even know how to dream up. I was like, I'm not a professional full-time painter, but I still love painting and love what it has meant in my life. And so I got to do a collection of Florida pieces, including like this big citrus scene and a couple abstract pieces, palm trees and beach scenes. And it was just a way to separate myself from my desk work, but also just really celebrate where I was living and the things that were bringing me joy at the time. So yeah, it's been great fun. I haven't painted in a, in a couple months just because of book tour and babies and you know all those things, but I love it. I do. Um, I think it's really helpful for anyone who has an artistic desk job that can be really draining to have something else to do to get away from it. Okay, last question. You've lived in Florida, which you've talked about some. You went to college in Illinois, and now you live in St. Louis. So aside from the heat, although I would say it gets pretty hot and humid in St. Louis as well, what would you say is the biggest difference between life in the South versus life in the Midwest? Yeah. So this is such a great question. And I'm actually going to say life in Florida because it's different than like the South. <laughs> Florida is weird. Oh, it's like yeah. its own thing. <laughs> yeah. Where I lived in Florida, it was very transient. I mean, it's a tourist town. Most people I met weren't from there, didn't grow up there, weren't born there, had moved there for something and wouldn't stay forever. And that was just kind of the culture. You know, people come and go. Things were always changing. And that is just not the vibe in the Midwest. Like our neighbors have lived in these houses since they were children. Like their grandparents lived in these houses. So I feel like there's like a transience in Florida. That's just not um, necessarily true here. You know, I have friends and connections here in St. Louis who are living in the homes that they basically inherited. So there's just like a different kind of history here um, from people who know the area so intimately and deeply. Whereas in Orlando, you know, it was a town of toddlers and tourists. Like it was just, <laughs> it was a completely different experience. Yeah. Well, Sierra, your book, again, I gave it five stars. I thought it was outstanding. It was that perfect, perfect blend of interesting story, interesting characters, and a lot of meat to it that I love. So I highly recommend Atomic Family. Sierra Horton McElroy, thanks for being our guest. Oh, of course. Thank you guys for having me. It was just a pleasure. You can find Sierra on her website at sierramcelroy.com and on Instagram at Sierra H. McElroy. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabookloverpod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. Y'all, there are so many podcasts out there. And so we always feel thankful that we have you as listeners. And if you like what we're doing with this show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.